My topic for this evening is who is God? And I'm not going to stand here and present you a pile of insurmountable evidence that God exists. Either you believe that he does or you don't, although there is a great deal of evidence to support his existence. If you don't want to believe that, then you won't. And it's unfortunate, but a lot of people make that choice. And with that choice, as Jim said this morning, there are repercussions. If you choose God, there are good things that happen. If you deny him, there are bad things that happen. It's the difference between life and death and heaven and hell. But there is a God. We assume for a moment that there is one. Genesis chapter 1, um, funny little story when uh, Josh asked me this morning, Mr. Smitty, do you have a, a scripture for me? And I said, yes, I do, Josh. Genesis chapter 1. And his eyes kind of widened for a minute like, man, that's a lot. And then I said, and verse 1. So he was somewhat comforted by that, I think. But uh, that would have been a good read for you, though, Josh, and I'm sure you could have accomplished it. But Genesis 1 and verse 1 says, In the beginning, God. And if we went no further than that, then we would know something about God right there, that before anything was, before there was any matter created, before there was light, before there was any natural law, before any of those things, God existed. And some people have said, well, where did God come from? Well, God didn't come from anywhere. He always has been and always will be. He is the eternal God, unchanging, without flaw, no character defects in him. He's a, if he was a football player, he'd have a perfect record. He'd never, never throw an interception, never drop the ball, any of those things. In any realm we might want to think of, God would be the best because he is perfect. We can read the Bible and see that it presents him as an all-powerful spiritual being, that he is omniscient, that is, he knows everything that can be known, that he is omnipotent, he, there is nothing beyond his ability to do, and the, he, he is omnipresent, that is, he is everywhere at once. Uh, not here a while and there a while and yonder and, and, and somewhere else, but everywhere at the same time. And certainly with, being, with knowing everything, being all-powerful and being everywhere, he certainly is the sovereign God of the universe. That means he's, his, he's in control. He's in control. I never have believed in, in luck, good or bad, and I never have believed in coincidence. Everything happens for a reason. Now, I don't know what that reason might be, and you might not know what that reason might be, but if it happens, then there is a reason for it. God either allowed it or was the causative agent for it, and we can know that by that that he is in control. And when we place our trust in the eternal God, then we have well-placed trust. We can depend on that. We can have assurance Bible tells us some of his attributes that, as we mentioned, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's all-wise, but he's also eternal. Isaiah chapter 56, or rather 57 and verse 15 tells us that, Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, and there are others that we could look at, a great many as a matter of fact, but 
God has always been around. He's always been around. I remember when I was a little boy, there were some older men in, uh, in town. I used to, uh, they all hung out at the barbershop, and they always wore, wore their suits and their vest and their hat, had their shoes shined like they were going to a business meeting. But they were just older men. They were retired and whatnot, and they would hang out up there. And when my dad had to do something that uh, a young kid shouldn't be involved in, he would drop me off at the barbershop. And I would sit and listen to those old men. Well, sometimes they would forget a little boy was in the room with them, and I'd hear some things that little boys probably were, wasn't supposed to hear. But it seemed like at that time that those men had just been around forever. Because when I grew up, they were still the same old men meeting in the same old barbershop. They looked as though they had maybe their noses and their ears had gotten bigger. But beyond that, that, that happens with some men. Did you notice that? When they get older, their ears get bigger and their noses get bigger. Or maybe the rest shrinks. I don't know. But, but they, they still appeared to be the same. It was like they had always been there and they would always be there. Of course, that wasn't true because they were mortal. But God doesn't change. He has always been there. He will always be there. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 tells us that, but it also tells us something more important. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we've been studying uh, in our class on Sunday morning with these young folks. And by the way, if you've got a, if one of your youngins are in my class, you have got a great kid. You have got a great kid because the four that I will, four that are uh, children of parents here and one who is visiting with us, Ethan, a friend of, friend of Ryan's, great bunch of kids, very interested, ask good questions. You want to learn as a Christian, teach a young people's class because they'll ask you stuff you never even thought of. And not foolishness either, not like did Adam have a belly button. It's, you know, it's real stuff that they want to know. And sometimes I don't know. I never thought of it. I'd have to go, so well, I'll have to get back to you on that. And, uh, but that's a good thing because it helps us all grow in knowledge and in faith and in understanding and as better Christians. The Bible tells us that not only is God eternal, but that he's faithful. There are many places in the Old Testament and New Testament that you can read. Sometimes... Take your concordance. If you've got a computer, a Bible program, just in the search menu, put in faithful. And see all the scripture that appears, Old and New Testament, that talks about, well, other people being faithful as well. But especially that God is faithful. Especially that God is faithful. First John, the first chapter and the ninth verse tells us that if we confess our sins to him, that he's faithful and just, which is another attribute of God to forgive us of our sins, and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So that means that even when we are not faithful, even when we fall short, that God is faithful. God is faithful. In 1 Corinthians 10, and verse 13, Scripture tells us that there's no temptation that has overtaken us except that which is common to man. But God is faithful. And with the temptation will provide a means of escape that we may be able to bear it. So over and over we find those kinds of references in the New Testament and the Old Testament telling us that we don't have to worry. God is faithful. God is faithful. 
I wish I could say that I was always faithful. I may, as Paul said in Romans 7, that I'm faithful in heart. With my mind, I want to do the right thing. But in my flesh, sometimes I'm not faithful. Sometimes we're all guilty of that. We think things, we do things, we say things, we even believe things that do not glorify, do not bring honor to God. And that's a problem for God, and it's a problem for us as well because it hurts Him because He loved us so much, but it also hurts us because it, if left to grow, if left to strengthen, then it would create a schism between us and God, and it may grow to a chasm, which may grow to such a division between us that we can't make it back. Not because we don't want to, but we have so our hearts have become so hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, as the writer to the Hebrews told, told those folks, that we just refuse to go back. We refuse to go back. Rather than the prodigal son, like him, coming to our senses and saying, I'm going back and tell my father I've sinned against God and against him. Just let me be a servant. Our pride, as Jim talked about this morning, will not let us say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, forgive me. And some of you may be in that situation tonight. I don't know. I don't know your minds, but I know that God knows, and he knows them better than anyone could, than even you know your mind. He knows it. But he is still able and he's still willing to take you out of whatever situation you are in and put you into a better place if you will confess your sin to him, talk to him about it. He's faithful, always faithful. God is holy. And holiness means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Some folks means that we have to be perfect to be holy. Well, God is perfect, and he is holy. But for us to be holy, it means for us to be godly, to be as much like him as we possibly can and always be in the attitude of, I want to be like Jesus. I'm not there yet. I ain't where I want to be, but I ain't where I used to be. I'm not where I'm going to be, but I want to be like Jesus. I want to be holy. I want to glorify God in all that I do, just as Jesus did when he was here upon the earth. He said, I want to say those things that I heard from him. I do those things that I see him doing. He is in me and I in him. Jesus wanted to be holy. He wanted to bring glory and honor to God. And that's what God intended for us to do as well. That's the reason in Romans chapter 3, Paul wrote that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Literally, in the Greek text, that means that we have failed to glorify God. We have not lived up to what he created us to be. So thereby, in not living up to that, we have not glorified him. People look at us instead of looking at our creator, instead of looking at our savior, instead of looking at our, our wise guide and sustainer, and see something wrong. And there's nothing wrong with God. But sometimes there is with us because although he's faithful and although he's holy, sometimes we're not. God is invisible. No one has seen God at any time, the Bible tells us. But people see us. 
people see us, and as Paul said, an ambassador for Christ, as, as we being ambassadors for God, people see us, and as the old Vidal Sassoon commercials used to say, if we don't look good, you don't look good. And if we don't look good, God doesn't look good, at least in the minds of some people, because we are his servants, we are his people, we are his family, and therefore unfortunate when we act in a way contrary to what God has commanded, to what God has exemplified in the Bible through, through his own actions and through the actions of those who were serving him, then people get a false idea of the reality of who is God. Who is God? You remember when God sent Moses to talk to the people in Egypt. They were in sore captivity. They were under hard taskmasters. And Moses tried to get out of it by saying, well, well, Lord, you know, I, I'm, he's standing there talking to a burning bush. He said, Lord, you know, I don't, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not, I don't have any oratory skills. Uh, I just, I don't think I can do it. Well, finally, God convinced him that he could. But then Moses said, well, Lord, who will I say has sent me? And what did God say? I am that I am. I am that I am. Didn't give him a name. You just tell them that. They'll know who you're talking about. And that means that I am that I am, that I always have been, that I am today, and I always will be. I am that I am. Moses learned from his experience that he could trust God, that God was faithful, that God was all-powerful, that God was able to do anything with anyone. And we can learn that same thing by our experiences as well. Now, God hadn't sent me to anybody to say, let my people free. But he has given us each one a gospel that will set people free. And we are to proclaim that gospel, that is the great commission that Jesus gave us, go into all the world, preach the gospel, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, he that believeth not is condemned, Mark 16 and 16, or Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth, therefore go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe Whatsoever things I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, and to the end of the world. God is real. God, we sing the song, our God, he is alive. God is real. God is alive. God is powerful. But the most, most important thing, in my view, is what we find in John in chapter 3 and verse 16. That is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have life everlasting. There are a lot of other attributes that we could look at about God. We could look at all the various names of God and what they mean, things about his works, what he has done, about his long-suffering, how patient he is with us, about his love for us, how merciful he is to us, that he is always righteous, that 
just over and over and over and over. We could look at the things that tell us about God, that he is the truth. As Jesus said in John 14 and 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In John 17 17, Jesus praying to the Father said, Sanctify them by thy word. Thy word is truth. And John 1 and verse 1 introduces Jesus as the word. So I think we can see the connection there. That God is truth. God's son is truth. God's son's word is truth. And according to John 12 and verse 48, it is by that very word that we will be judged, not by some man, not by opinion, but by the word that Jesus has spoken, we'll be judged in the last days. And at that time, what we know about God, what we know about his son Jesus, how we have related to them both through the Bible, through the gospel that was delivered to us, through the faith that was once delivered unto all men, how we relate to them by that will determine our eternal destination and our eternal habitation. The Bible tells us that God's merciful. And mercy is not something that we earn, something that is freely given. God loved us. While we were yet sinners, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, God sent his son to die for us. While we were at enmity with God, while we were his enemies, God still allowed his son to come and give his life that we might be saved. I can't fathom that kind of love. I love my wife. I love my children. I love you guys. I love you guys. But if someone came and said, Smitty, you sacrifice your wife, I'll let Roger go to heaven. Roger, I love you, brother, but you're toast. Okay. <laughs> I don't have the kind of love that God does. Abraham did, obviously, when God said, I want you to take your only son Isaac and sacrifice him. And Abraham was ready to go. Had the knife, had the wood, had the sacrifice. But God stopped him. It was a test. I hope that God never tests me in that way, but someday he may. Someday he may test you in that way. And I pray that when he does, we won't be found wanting, that we will pass the test, that God will know for a reality that we are his people, that we do love him more than anything. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. And that's the point of knowing God. By seeking him, we find him. By studying about him, we come to know him. By living a life that he has given us in a way that glorifies him, we become like his son, Jesus. No, we're never going to be God. We're never even going to be like his son Jesus, but we are going to be his children. We are going to be his children with all the blessings, with all the benefits that that implies. But there's a transaction that has to be made, and it's predicated upon God's faithfulness, upon his sacrifice, upon our willingness and our sacrifice. God was faithful in that he loved us and gave his son for us. We must be faithful 
in that we love him and are willing to give ourselves to him. You remember Paul writing to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 12? Beginning in verse 1, he, he cried out to them, I beseech ye, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves as living sacrifices unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, proving what is that good and acceptable will of God. He's talking about sacrifice. And folks, I don't know about you, but when I first became a Christian, I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't know that the, you, you, you can't have certain things in the church and you should have other things in the church. And I didn't know about elderships and deaconships and preacherships and any kind of ships. Didn't know any of those things. Didn't know that we were supposed to take communion every first day of the week. I just didn't know. But I knew that I was a lost sinner. And I knew that God's mercy had saved me when I obeyed the gospel. I knew that. And with that as a foundation upon which to base my study and understanding of God, then I got to know other things. And because I found that God was just and that God was righteous, then I didn't have any problem with the other commands that God had. Once you know him, then you won't have any problems with what he wants you to do. You won't have any problems with what he wants you to do. So who is God? I think of him as my father in heaven and my best friend. My best friend. Someone once said, if you have one good friend in your lifetime, you have a treasure indeed. I have two good friends that I trust implicitly, would give my life for. One of them is sitting in the pew right yonder looking pretty. And the other one is up in heaven waiting on me to come home. And he's waiting on all of us. He's waiting on all of you. I want to go to heaven. I hope you do. I hope you do. I've often described it as if you could visualize in your mind two doors here beside me. And, and on the right hand, if you open that door, you would hear a chorus of angels singing See the bright light that fills heaven. Feel the warmth and the love that flows out of that kingdom into our own through that door. Or if you open the other one, then you could smell the smell of brimstone and hear the cries of tortured souls who are in hell in torment as the rich man was for eternity. And then make a decision. Now you can go through this door or you can go through this door. And you would think that would be a no-brainer, wouldn't you? But some folks just may have the decision tonight. You have that choice tonight. And you may say, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm not ready. Well, I'm not ready to go to Pasadena, but if the train leaves and I'm on it, I'm going. And you may not be ready to be going to heaven or hell, but if the train leaves and you're on it, then one of those two places will be your destination. So it, it, 
behooves us to make those decisions while we are still in our right mind and not under the pressure of death, of eternal damnation. So if you're not a Christian tonight, who is God? God is someone that loves you. God is someone who wants to save you. God is someone who gave you life and is willing to give you new life in Christ. God is someone that is willing to lift the burden that now is bearing you down. If you are a Christian and you're having struggles, God can handle that. The great invitation, Matthew 11 and verse 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. That's who God is. That's who God is. God is your father and your friend, and he wants to save you. And the Bible tells us if you want to be saved, you have to want it. He doesn't force it on anybody. But if you want to be saved, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to someday hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord, tonight is the night to make that decision. The Bible says that if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, then we can be saved, John 8 and verse 24. The Bible says that if we repent, then we can be saved, Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. The Bible says that if we confess Jesus as both Lord and Christ, we can be saved, but we must do it before people. It's an open confession, Matthew chapter 10, verses 31 32. The Bible says that if we want to be saved, if we'll be baptized in water to have our sins washed away, then we can be saved. Mark 16, 16, Acts 2, 38, 1 Peter 3 and verse 21, Galatians 3 and verse 27, and there are many others that we might, might look at. The Bible says if we are willing to live as a Christian unto death, Revelation 2 and verse 10, then we can be saved. And if that's what you want tonight, if you want to be a Christian, then believe what you've heard, repent of your sins, confess your Savior, be baptized in water, and live a godly life as best you can. If you are a Christian tonight and you've drifted away, that happens sometimes. A lot of things in the world to distract us, if you, and you've drifted away. Maybe you've just become lukewarm, or maybe you've become cold toward God. God hasn't moved. God is ready and willing to have you back just as the prodigal son, his father, was waiting and looking for him and had the feast prepared for his return. But whatever your need is tonight, or maybe you're just having some struggles that you need the prayer, prayer of your friends, of your, your, your family, the church, we're going to have an invitation song. Scott's going to come and lead us in that in just a moment. And you have the opportunity at that time to make the decision to choose the door on the right or the door on the left. It's up to you. We don't know how many days we have left or even how many minutes, but a time is coming when the Lord will return to call his own to him. And those who are his, home shall, are his own shall rise to meet him in the sky, there to be with him forever. But those who are not will lift up their eyes in torment, there to be, there to be forever as well. Whatever you need is, I hope you come tonight. We love you. Let us help you as we stand together and sing our invitation song.